Make sure I'm on. Yes, I am. Thank you, Donovan and Brian and Gary and Patty and Brandon for leading us in worship this morning. Um, As uh, Gary told you, Cliff would be here, but for the second week in a row, he's having a grandchild dedicated, so they're at uh, Beth and Chris's church in Redlands this morning. And so I get the pulpit this morning. Now, Cliff usually preaches on two or three verses. Maybe once in a while he stretches it out, gets maybe five or six verses. But I'm going to be a little more ambitious this morning because I'm going to shoot for the longest chapter in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, 71 verses in total. But I don't want you to worry. I've timed it out, and I should come in under an hour. So <laughs> Now, um, this chapter contains a lot. It covers a lot of events that we are familiar with. It has the feeding of the 5,000, um, Jesus walking on the water. It has his I am the bread discourse, which contains some very hard sayings of Jesus's that caused many of his followers to walk away. And um, the way, but the way that John presents this is, is a sequence that if you read through it, it seems to take a couple days. Now, it may have been you know, stretched out, especially the second half, may have been stretched out a little longer than that, but uh, John, in writing his, his gospel, he sometimes condenses events because he wants to carry out a theme of what he is um, trying to present. So he, in, in contrast to some of the other gospels where they're pretty sequential, and pretty much, you know, this is an account. John sometimes mixes things around and, and groups them together a little differently. But uh, there is a definite unity to this entire chapter. And it's obvious that the Apostle John wrote this passage to reveal some very profound truths about the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be a believer. As John wrote towards the conclusion of his gospel in John 20, verses 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I've taken uh, chapter 6 and I've broken it into three sections. The first of which I'm calling Jesus is the bread. He did not come to give bread. And that's the first uh, 35 verses of the chapter. So we begin with the feeding of the 5,000, an event that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. From five loaves and two fishes, Jesus miraculously feeds the multitude, even to the point that they're all full and there's leftovers. And we read about this. This is the first 15 verses of the um, chapter. And After seeing this sign, the people confess amongst themselves that Jesus must be the prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen. But the people reveal a lack of understanding in their assumption of what this actually means. It is true that Jesus is the prophet that was foretold, but they do not see him as the one to whom they should listen. Rather, they look to Jesus 
for his usefulness to them. He can provide them with food to fill their bellies. He can heal their diseases. Surely he can overthrow the Roman rulers and reestablish an independence for the Jewish people. So, what do they do? They seek to make him king by force. They recognize the power and authority Jesus must have, but they want to use him to meet and fulfill their own personal desires. St. Augustine put it this way, Jesus is usually sought after for something else, not for his own sake. Remember the people were gathering to Jesus because of the signs he performed in healing the sick. We read this in in verse 2. And now they had just witnessed and partaken of a miraculous sign themselves. So why then are they seeking him? If you are seeking Jesus because he is useful, you are seeking him for the wrong reason. Which is not to say that Jesus is not useful. He, of course, is. But Jesus must be sought for even greater rewards and with deeper understanding, as Jesus will soon make clear as we read through the rest of this chapter. Jesus withdrew from the people to a mountain all by himself. He was not going to let them force him to be their king. We read on in John's um, account, beginning in verse 16 through 20. He records how, as evening came, the disciples got into a boat and started back across the sea to Capernaum without Jesus. Now, Matthew and Mark, in their Gospels, they tell us that this is actually what Jesus had told them to do. So they weren't just, you know, oh, Jesus isn't here, let's... let's go anyway. He's out of luck. No, they're actually following Jesus' instruction. So they cross over the uh, Sea of Galilee, and they get about three or four miles out. And the wind is blowing strong, and the, the sea is rough. And it's nighttime. It's dark. And then we read that Jesus performs a second miracle in this chapter. He walks to the disciples on the water and ends up getting in the boat with them. Now, I think about this, and I think, okay, you can multiply food, but walking on water is even a little more amazing to me. But this fir- the first sign was witnessed by both the disciples and the people. The second sign is only witnessed by the disciples. And I'm just going to say a couple things briefly about this for the sake of time. First, Jesus, when they see him, they're frightened. They, they cry out, and, and Jesus says... Um, you know, it is I. But he uses the divine name, which is recorded in, in the Gospels, ego aime in Greek. These are the same words that are used in all the I am statements. Second, looking at uh, the other accounts in Matthew and in Mark, the same words are used by Jesus. He doesn't say, it is I or it's me. He says, ego aime. And in Matthew's account, we are told that after all this, the disciples in the boat worship Jesus. And we get a slightly different um, take or um, viewpoint or added detail in Mark where he relates that they still did not understand about the sign of the loaves and what that signified. 
And, and Mark even goes on to state that, that, that their hearts were hardened. But let's remember in John's Gospel, everything that we are reading is to show us all we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Son of God and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So let's continue on in John's account. He writes that the following day, the people are still seeking Jesus. They knew that he hadn't gotten into the boat with the other disciples. Perhaps they thought, well, Jesus, maybe he, he walked to Capernaum. So they decide to get in some boats themselves, and they head over across the sea to um, Capernaum to try to find Jesus. Now certainly this is a good thing, right? We should be encouraged and happy that people seek Jesus. Well, let's see how Jesus responds to their seeking after him. They get to Capernaum, and indeed they do find Jesus on the other side of the sea. And they ask, Rabbi, how did you get here so fast? And does Jesus answer their question? Does he tell them how he walked across the choppy waters of the Sea of Galilee for miles in the dark? I mean, if he had, that would have certainly encouraged their enthusiasm for proclaiming him their political leader. I mean, imagine an unseekable armada of boats. No. Jesus instead confronts their motivation in seeking after him. It is because they want their bellies filled. Jesus, recognizing their desire for earthly, perishable things, challenges them to seek rather the enduring and eternal benefits He, the Son of Man, their Messiah, came to give them. You see, they missed the importance of the signs which were meant to show who Jesus is and instead focused on the actual products of those signs. They wanted Jesus as a means to an end instead of the destination itself. All the miracles that Jesus performed are meant to signify who he is and the people completely missed it. So Jesus is going to use their own mindset to show them how far off the mark they are. They sought him and crossed the sea, laboring just for bread to eat. Jesus told them they ought to labor for food that endures to eternal life, food that only he could provide. Well, they take the bait and ask what work they should, do, they should be doing to get this bread. Well, Jesus flips it on them and says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Expecting classic salvation by their own works, Jesus begins to teach what it truly means to seek him, what the actual requirement is. And what's kind of amazing, even after they had, all that they had witnessed, I mean, they'd just been fed from all of them, plus thousands others, because not certainly the whole thousands didn't cross the sea after him. A little contingent got in the boat and crossed the, the sea and came and found him. Even after experiencing the miracle of the loaves and fishes, they asked for another sign. See, they were expecting a leader like Moses, but Moses did not provide the manna that sustained Israel in the wilderness. Moses did not cross the people safely from one side of a sea to the other. Jesus begins to explain to them who he truly is. 
the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, whom God had sent down to give life to the world. So far up to this point, you get the sense that the people are tracking with him. I mean, this sounds good. Life-giving bread from heaven. What Jesus is describing sounds even better than manna. So sure, they want this bread. In fact, they want it always. And it is here that we come to a major turning point in John's gospel. Up to this point, John, or, or Jesus was a very popular personality. And if he continued to go about things as he had been, he doubtless would have gained an unprecedented popular following with everyone seeking after him. You might even imagine if he had taken the advice of some of his disciples, he could have grown his ministry and reached far more people with his message. Except Jesus didn't come to be popular, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. What Jesus says following verse 35 will offend, shock, even dismay many people. But it's there in John's gospel. And since John was there, and this is God's inspired word, let's receive it with reverence and submission. Jesus has just told them that he himself is the very bread of life, that in coming to him, no one will ever hunger. Believing in him, one will never thirst. This is the first I am statement that we find in John's gospel. And there are a total of seven. It is an explicit claim to deity, ego aime. The truth of that is linguistically, historically, and logically demonstrable. And there's not a necessity for me to lay it all out for you now, but imagine and try to understand what it would be like for a first century Jew or Greek, to hear a man claiming to be God. You see, people could reasonably expect someone like Moses to come along again. After all, Moses said another like him was coming. But Jesus is going to go on from here and make clear that his presence truly signifies something far greater, that it goes far beyond Moses' office and signifies much more than healing the sick and feeding the hungry or even overturning the political order. But what is perhaps most surprising to us is the response Jesus will get from his offer of something far better than Moses. And that brings us to the next section of the chapter, which we'll look at, verses 36 through 59. And I call this the nature of unbelief and the source of belief. But before we delve into uh, Jesus' discourse here, let's look back a little. We're not just going to cover John 6. We're going to go 2, 4, 5, two, or 2, 3, 4, 5, four more chapters. I'm really ambitious. <laughs> go back to chapter 2, and this is where we see the first sign that John records of Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And John says that it manifested Jesus' glory, and it resulted in his disciples believing in him, in chapter 2, verse 11. Next, John goes on to tell the episode of Jesus clearing the temple. And when the Jewish leaders questioned his authority to do this, what they do? They demanded a sign, and Jesus cryptically answers them, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then what does John say? The disciples came to understand this after Jesus was raised from the dead. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Chapter 2, 22. Again, the signs Jesus performed are meant to lead people into believing in him as the one whom God has sent. The theme of belief is carried on through the next few chapters of John. Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus, uh, John 3.16 and 18, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. John the Baptist's exaltation of Jesus found in 3.36 where he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Moving into chapter 4, we have the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and the townspeople of Sychar. And what do they say? Many more believe because of his word. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And notice that this last example, the people of Sychar believing in Jesus, is not a result of some sign or miracle, but merely his words. Though Nicodemus attests to knowledge of signs by Jesus, not all of these testimonies and professions of faith are said to be the results of witnessing some miraculous sign, but they are simply belief in Jesus' words themselves. John then continues on in chapter 4 to record that they all returned to Galilee. This is the place where Jesus had turned the water into wine, and Jesus expresses his displeasure with the people of his home region, he being from Galilee himself. He decries their obstinacy, saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Still, Jesus does perform a second sign here in Cana, healing the son of the official who came from Capernaum, and he does this simply by his word alone. This second sign done in Cana results in the official's faith in Jesus, along with his whole household. Moving on from chapter 4 into chapter 5. It's, a new, it's another pilgrimage feast, and the scene shifts back to Jerusalem. And here we have recorded the healing of the invalid by the pool of Bethesda. Now, in contrast to the previous passages, this one is focused upon another related but opposing theme, that of unbelief. The man healed does not know who Jesus is, but Jesus heals him anyway by his own divine will and power. And this sets up a long interaction and confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders who afterwards witness this man carrying his mat on the Sabbath. The Sabbath being the day. I mean, Jesus had just healed him on the Sabbath and had instructed him to pick up his mat and walk with it. This man, still not knowing who it was that had healed him, simply says that the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. Later on, Jesus finds this man in the temple, and he says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Nothing is said of this man believing or having faith, or even knowing really who Jesus is. All All he knows is that this is the man who healed him. But Jesus does not explain or disclose himself anymore to this man. 
After this encounter, the, the man tells the Jewish leaders, hey, it was this guy over here, Jesus, who healed me. And we are given a startling example of unbelief of the Jewish leaders. Before them stood a man who had been disabled for 38 years. This must have been well known. He'd been at the pool of Bethesda trying to get healed. They'd seen him. This guy had not been able to walk for 38 years. And now he's healed and walking around and standing in front of him. But simply because Jesus did this by his own divine power on the Sabbath, they set about to persecute him. Jesus answers them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this infuriates them even further, because they understand it to mean that he is making God equal to himself, or making himself equal to God, calling God his father. And through the following discourse, Jesus does claim to be God, citing the signs he has already shown and the great, greater signs that he is going to do in, in the future. And he claims the prerogatives of God over the Sabbath as he is the author of the Sabbath. And then he directly confronts their unbelief. Jesus tells them they search the scriptures to have eternal life, but they would not come to Jesus about whom the scriptures were written that they might have eternal life. If they had truly believed Moses and the prophets, they would believe him. For it was all written about him, and he has come to fulfill all of it. But since they did not believe what was written, neither would they believe Jesus' words. And that brings us back to chapter 6, where John is going to be hammering on the themes of belief in Christ and unbelief. And the pictures throughout chapter 6 of bread, life, eating, drinking, are all tied together and refer to the same, same thing, faith in Christ as the one sent by God and in whom alone is eternal life. This is the true meaning of coming to Jesus and believing. And Jesus will now explain to the people seeking him the nature of unbelief and the source of belief. Let's look at verse 36. The people who had followed him across the sea, seeking him, he now turns to and confronts in the same manner as he did the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. You have seen me, he tells them, and yet you do not believe. People obviously believed that Jesus was a prophet, even the prophet, they believed he could do miracles, that he could do great things for them. Yet this is what Yahweh says, said concerning the prophet foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command, them, all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What they did not believe was who he was, the Holy One of God, whose words were the words of eternal life. And then Jesus lays out the glorious meaning of the salvation he delivers to all 
who come to him in verses 37 through 40. Jesus, the true bread of life, is sent down from heaven to give eternal life to everyone who looks on him and believes on him. No one who comes to him will be cast out. No one who comes to him will be lost. This is the good news, the gospel of Christ, the gift of God, our Savior. Why then do we read in verses 41 and 42 that the Jews grumbled about this? These people knew Moses' writing. They knew what the scripture said. Why would they not listen to the words Jesus spoke and believe and accept them as the very words of God? It should be unquestionable that Jesus is from God at this point, as made evident by the miraculous signs he has performed. We need to pay close attention now to what Jesus himself says to these people who have come seeking after him that he just confronted with the charge of unbelief. Jesus is going to make two statements concerning who will and who will not be able to come to him and believe. The first is found in verse 37. All that the Father gives Jesus will come to him. The second is in verse 44. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. It is important to keep these two statements together, for Jesus is saying that everyone the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, and only those that the Father draws will come to Jesus. It is also important to understand what Jesus means by come to me. He is not referring to everyone and anyone that sought after him because he was doing miracles and healing the sick. Jesus says that those the Father gives to him, in verse 37, of those people, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in verse 44, and I will raise him up on the last day. And just to drive the point home, in verse 39, Jesus says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus is saying, if the Father gives anyone to the Son, that one will come to the Son. And Jesus will never cast that one out, nor will he lose that one. But Jesus will raise that one on the last day. That one who came did so because the Father gave that one to the Son and will believe and will be saved. And Jesus makes clear that this is only possible by the sovereign will of God the Father. Only by divine action can anyone come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout this discourse, Jesus confronts the misunderstanding and unbelief of the Jewish leaders and the people. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and their desire to take him by force to be their king, Jesus explains what the nature and source of belief, saving faith, truly is. It requires grasping who Jesus is, our need for him, and partaking fully of his life and sacrifice for our eternal sustenance. This is the whole meaning of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We should recognize that Jesus is speaking, what he is speaking of, when he's talking about eating and drinking, that eating and drinking are analogous to the acts of coming to him and believing in him. These words describe spiritual truth, not fleshly material matters. 
Just as the people came to him and he provided the physical nourishment of their bodies in the first 15 verses of this chapter, in the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, we are to come to him and believe in him for the nourishment of our spiritual need. Only by fully partaking of him will we come to true life, eternal life in God. Finally, Jesus sums up the whole of this discourse in verse 58, speaking of himself. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Notice that Jesus does not soften the figures of speech or simplify the concepts for them. Nor for us. He denies us any attempt to strip the truth from these figures of bread, food, drink, flesh, blood. We must attune our spirits and our ears to our Lord's chosen modes of expression. For in doing so, we can be made more sure of our own genuine belief. And this is going to bring us to our final section of the chapter, verses 60 through 71, that I call scandalized by Christ. After this, Jesus turns to address his disciples. Now, these are not recent followers. These are men and women who had walked far and wide with him, listening to his teachings, and they'd seen his miracles. They had made a conscious choice to follow him as their teacher. They left behind their homes, their families, and jobs to follow Jesus and learn from him and be part of what he was doing. So surely these are all true believers, right? Yet, we read that these things that Jesus had just said were hard for them to swallow also. Many began to grumble, just as the Jewish leaders and people had. So Jesus asked them if they are offended by his words. The actual word that John uses here is the Greek word skandaliso, which you can readily recognize is similar to our English word scandal and is derived from the Greek word scandalon, which is where our English word comes from. And thinking about our current climate of cancel culture, we can relate to what we are seeing here. Jesus had offended many people already, and now we see that even many of his followers took offense at his words. But Jesus does not retract or backtrack or apologize or even clarify what he had said, not even for his followers. Instead, he reaffirms them. Verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Then once again, he confronts them, confronts unbelief. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Even amongst those who had gone so far as to become his disciples, we find unbelief. Then Jesus drives in the final nail, verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And with this we read that many of Jesus' followers unfollowed him. 
Their misunderstanding and unbelief are a result of their natures. And unless God grants them faith, they will not and cannot believe. Jesus explain, or John explains for us that none of this was a surprise to Jesus. He knew who the Father had given to him and whom he had not. Yet, there were those of Jesus' disciples who had not chosen him, but whom he had chosen. So we read that turning to them, the twelve, Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? In verse 67. To which Peter answers, showing what it truly means to come and believe. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Cliff has just started his sermon series in First Peter, so let me just insert here the next few verses that will be coming up in First Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may result, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the declaration and encouragement of a genuine believer. Peter did not fully understand his confession at the time in John 6. But towards the end of his life, he knew that there was nowhere else to go, no one else to turn to. Jesus has the words of eternal life. And you can believe he is the Holy One of God. Jesus affirms his teaching after Peter's answer. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. God's sovereignty in all things is absolute, even his own betrayal. Now, this is a struggle for each of us. It is hard for us to imagine, first of all, anyone seeing Jesus in the flesh, standing before him, hearing his words, seeing his goodness and kindness and love and miracles, and imagine that, imagining that person walking away. How is it even possible when I have never seen him, yet I love him? I have never seen him, yet I believe him, and rejoice with joy inexpressible at his revelation. Why do I believe? Why do you believe? I have family and friends who have heard the gospel, confessed faith, walked the Christian walk, professed their faith to others, but who now reject the God who made them, the God who offers to save them from sin and from death. And I'm sure that you know of people, friends and family, who have done the same. Why is it that someone 
who has been exposed to the same gospel as you, clearly and rightly explained, does not respond, but instead rejects the offer of Christ. Why do you and I respond to that same gospel in faith? I often struggled with this question because if another could turn away from Christ and cling to the world, who is to say that I could not make the same choice? And what of those who struggle in their faith? Can I be sure that doubt and discouragement will not overcome them and strip them away from God? Yet it is this chapter, these hard teachings of Jesus that comfort me and give me hope. Because I have come. I believe. Jesus will not lose me, and he has saved and is saving and will save me to eternal life. And Jesus will do this for everyone that the Father has given him. Everyone. We are not aware of whom God has sovereignly chosen to give to the Son. Such is not our purview. But is it not of great comfort knowing that the Father's will is that the Son should lose nothing of all that he has given him? And that we have this promise from our Lord Jesus Christ, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world that we might believe in him and have eternal life. Hold us firmly in your grasp that we may not be discouraged or lose hope. May we earnestly seek after Jesus to fully partake of him that, may re- that we may rejoice with inexpressible joy in your salvation. Amen. Now, it's almost impossible to read this chapter and to get to the part where Jesus says we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have life in us and not think of the Lord's Supper. And of course, at Bridges, we uh, commemorate the Lord's Supper communion on the first Sunday of every month. However, this um, particular discourse was not about the observance of the communion table. But the communion table has everything to do about this discourse. If we can put up the last slide, it may be best explained by this quote from the commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Although this discourse has nothing to do with the sacrament of the supper, the sacrament has everything to do with it as the visible embodiment of these figures and to the believing partaker a real, yea, the most lively and affecting participation of his flesh and blood, the nourishment thereby of the spiritual and eternal life here below. So what we do in communion is to remind us of the truth Jesus speaks of here in chapter 6. 
we are to fully partake of Jesus himself for our spiritual nourishment. So if you will take your elements... On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the cup together. Lord Jesus, be with us and in us and give us life, we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for worship this Sunday morning. God bless you all.